Good morning and welcome to Backstory with me, Noreen Mayer. If you're tuning into Backstory for the first time, then you should know that Backstory is a program where you can get up close and personal with some of the familiar voices of Hong Kong. Voices you've heard talk about social and political issues, but in the next half an hour or so, there is no escaping for them to talk about their personal life. And our guest today, well, uh, to, to say he's outspoken is an understatement, but probably one of the most knowledgeable guests who can talk about most topics without any notes. He's a financial wizard, an economist, a writer, a broadcaster, a former part-time womanizer. I'd like to welcome to the show my friend Andrew Soon. Andrew, welcome to the program. <laughs> That was a, a relatively more interesting introduction I have had. <laughs> a part-time womanizer. <laughs> well, yeah, those those were the former days. But you know, I've I've always wanted to do a backstory on you. I think the turning point was what happened to you in 2012. We'll, we'll get to that uh, later on the program. But th there was never an avenue for us to talk about your personal life until uh, this is, by the way, the fourth season of Backstory. So I'm very pleased to finally be able to to invite you to talk about your life a little bit. So you are you are born and raised in Hong Kong, through and through a, a Hong Kong guy. What was your childhood like? What, what do your parents do? Uh, I was born in Kowloon. In the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, um, I was I was uh, uh, given birth there. Well, my mother, my mother gave birth to me there um, because she worked as a nurse uh, at uh, at the, the QE Hospital. Uh, in fact, uh, the night where Bruce Lee uh, passed away, uh, she was on duty. So I said, "Oh, would would you part of the team that tried to try to rescue him?" And she was like, "No, she because she worked in the." Uh, In the uh, infant uh, infirmary, I think. Yes. So okay. that was that was the story. Yes. Uh, my father uh, was a barrister uh, and turned solicitor when I was three years old. So I was raised by a, a lawyer and a nurse. Wow. Yes. Would you say you had quite a privileged upbringing? Yes. Uh, I like your honesty. I am. <laughs> I am. I was. I guess I was born with a silver foot in my mouth. <laughs> That it proves useful when I became a commentator. Yeah. Yes. Did you do well at school? Did I do well? Uh, I remember taking 10 GCSEs. Uh, I got seven A's. That was the day before. Eight. I was the last year where they didn't have any stars. So uh, seven A's, and the remaining grades were B, C, and D. I got a B for French. Uh, you would you would say that why would a Chinese guy whose second language is already English do French, right? Well, all I can say was I had to learn because it was colonial tradition. I went to colonial school and therefore I had to learn the second language of English people. And obviously, when they get posted to Hong Kong, their second language would be French. <laughs> well, there was also German, but of course. Yes, uh, but then it also helped me pronounce uh, brand names correctly, like Louis Vuitton, Longchamp, <laughs> and uh, the perfect and Hermes, yeah. Hermes. So uh, yes, it, it, it wasn't awful or not. So uh, that was how I got to be in French. I got to see. English, um, which I thought wasn't too bad, considering that I was competing with people uh, who had English as a first language, and I had a D for English literature because I didn't really read. Oh, that was really hard. Yeah. I, the only thing I read back then was Japanese comic books and uh, and uh, horse racing journals written in Chinese. So already, yes, wow. Let me. I, I, I'm I'm an uncle. I'm 38 now, right? <laughs> so you know the uncles' generation out there, all you young people out there. Yes, uncles back then read racing journals in secondary school like 
a typical high school student in the U.S. reading about、uh, football or basketball or ice hockey. You're actually one of the youngest guests I've had on Backstory. One of them, of course, because you know, it, it, I feel weird being invited. Although I, I have long cherished any opportunities to work with Noreen, I have always felt weird to talk about my life story at the age of 38. You know, it would be like Justin Bieber writing an autobiography, right? It, it would sell though. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of banking on this, and people will like it. Ratings, my girl. Ratings. So I, I thought RTHK was above that kind of stuff. Oh、uh, yeah, we don't count ratings. We just count the people who listen. <laughs> Talk us through. What did you want to be when you were little? You know? I had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, I was. I I knew that I wanted to、uh, make money. That was pretty typical. But in but what, you, I you don't grew、know. up with money. Why, why was that so important? Oh, it's just make a statement. I guess I was driven by the same kind of impulse that drives Richard Lee in acquiring、okay. uh, Hong Kong Telecom. You know, did Richard Lee really need to buy Hong Kong Telecom? No, he was out there to make a point, especially to his father. And I think I had the same kind of uh, uh, monkey on my back too. So you know,、uh, but、um, I don't know what I was going to do. I certainly didn't even know where I was going to do it because I was I was raised. My formative years、uh, was spent. My first recognition of whatever was going on in the, in, beyond myself was probably, you know, six or seven years old, and that coincided with the、uh, joint declaration between Margaret Thatcher and、uh, Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping, and then you know you had that basic law drafting, the June the Fourth massacre, all that argument between Chris Patton and the、uh, and the、uh, New China News Agency back then. So my formative year was spent knowing that it will be a tumultuous time in Hong Kong. So therefore, I don't even know where I was going to do it. Um, my sisters, on the other hand,、uh, was was guided.、Uh, they they knew sort of they knew that one of them wanted to be a veterinarian, and the other became a doctor. You know, but I really had no idea. So,、uh, and, and you're the was, only boy in the family as well, right? So my father had high hopes that I'd become a doctor, but I dropped biology in my A levels. You know, so I, I you know that basically sealed the fate.、Uh, and then I ended up in chemistry. I ended up in A levels with、uh, taking chemistry. Economics and mathematics, to which a lot of my、uh, my peers, including a lot of my actually my eldest, asked me, "What are you? Some sort of an alchemist?" No, but you know, no. Actually, they just simply said, "What kind of career do you think you're going to have with that kind of mix of classes?" Right? Breaking Bad. <laughs> actually, there was one profession which used all three, and I became one of them. I became an oil analyst at an investment bank. So、uh, a lot of the oil analysts out there in Hong Kong didn't do chemistry. You were an oil analyst. Yes, I, I was. No idea. I, I I always laughed that I was a top ten oil analyst in Hong Kong the moment I joined the profession because there was only nine of us out there. <laughs> 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 you know, it was so devoid of talent back then because Hong Kong had no oil industry. But、uh, so ha- I remember having my organic chemistry book on top of my te- on, on on my desktop. Um, when I was working at a bank, and、uh, a lot of these questions about refining, about oil extractions, no one else knew the answer to, apart from me and my boss, because my boss knew a lot about the oil industry, being、uh, being educated in Singapore. But、um, uh, it was it was a quite it was it was a rather rather strange mix of education. But then, of course, I applied to various universities in my seventh year of secondary school, back then called Year Eleven. Sorry, Year Thirteen, Year Thirteen. And I was rejected by all, right? And the office, yes, the office that I got from UK universities, I did not meet in my A level exams.、Um, a car crash would be the most appropriate way of my, to describe my A level exams.、Uh, I passed all of it, 
I got a B and a C and a D, but uh, it wasn't good enough for whatever I was shooting for. So I took a year out to work, and um, I didn't get my results until August of uh, twenty fifth. Uh, sorry, nineteen ninety five, and in about May or June nineteen ninety five, I figured because nineteen ninety five was an election year. I wrote to a legislator, which I knew was going to run in my in the in the area that I lived in, and uh, her name was Christine Lowe. So uh, after the uh, my results came out, it was before the elections. I just simply went up to her and said, "You know, I'll be taking a year out. Uh, I don't know. Well, actually, I, we all knew she was going to win because it, you know she was doing very well in the opinion poll. She was getting better and better, uh, beating out uh, um, Peggy Kwok." No, it's not Peggy Quark. Peggy, uh, Peggy Lamb. Lam. Peggy yeah. Lamb. That's it. Peggy Lamb. Uh, one of the earliest feminists, actually, in Hong Kong was Peggy Lamb. But uh, anyway, she was doing better and better than Peggy Lamb. We knew it was going to win. So I asked her for, a, for an internship. We didn't call it an internship back then because it wasn't really a popular word until Monica Lewinsky, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I simply asked her, can work I have a job? Work experience. Right. Well, I simply asked her for some work experience. I said, I'm going to be reapplying to university and I work in your office. So that, that was how I spent the year in her office. Uh, and there I learned quite a lot. I learned how to operate a fax machine which uh, most of the millennials don't know how to use nowadays. Um, I knew, I, I, I learned how to talk to the constituents. You know, and in fact, I handled the constituents better than most of the university-aged volunteers of a team. Uh, and then during my university uh, career, oh, sorry, during my year off, I applied to universities again. But this time around, my father said, apply somewhere where you know you're going to get in. All right. So lo and behold, in April of 2016, I got my acceptance letter. And predictably, 1996. Uh, sorry, 1996, yes. I got my acceptance <laughs> letter from one university, from that safety school that I applied to. Right? So I remember being, wow, finally someone took me. You know, I'm going somewhere in September. And I called my father up. But this is great. He was, he was in an office. I called him up. I said, finally someone took me in. You know, my father, this was my father's response. It was most, most typical of my father. He said, well, whatever university would take you probably won't be a good one. So let's, let's talk when we, when I get home. Let's go back to something you said at the beginning of this interview. You, mm. you, you said you, you wanted to make money. That was, that was something that you wanted to do. Right. Being a Michigan, a Michigan university graduate and then earning, like you said, $4,000, that's, that's not a lot of money. Right. And the, you know, did that, did that affect you? Did of that course. Dent I mean, your, it made bruise it, your ego a little bit. Not, not just bruise the ego. I mean, basically de- destroyed anything, any beliefs I had in, in myself. I mean, I just thought that that's it. We, I, that's nothing I can do. You know, it got to the point whereby I thought about applying a job for being a, a chauffeur because there was there was a, an ad I think uh, I remember putting out put out by a property company in Hong Kong that asked for a chauffeur that had to be bilingual, and I thought maybe I should apply for a job as a chauffeur. And you're being serious. And that was yeah, that yeah. I was being serious. And you know, uh, and then the first job I had training firm at the post SARS, the economy was still very very bad, right? Um, it was it, I I got it because my father shared my unemployable story to one of his friends, and his friend simply said, "Why don't you ask him to come work for me?" You know, and it was my father's client that I worked first worked for. Um, and then about a year or nine months or 10 months into that job, um, because my father kept sharing my story to his friends because, you know, he kept calling me a bum. Right. Just, <laughs> because, because you understand men that generation love sharing these stories because everyone had a child that couldn't get employed or couldn't go to school. Um, not for lack of talent. It's simply because of the, uh, of the economic. Uh, situation back then and um, so another uncle of mine simply called me up and said oh we had lunch you know several months ago that's how we met I, I don't think you were a complete idiot 
you know, and I understand that you did economics and you know the stock market somewhat. Why don't you try to apply for a job as a research assistant? Uh, I'll hook you up. And he did. He called up the owner of the firm and the firm gave me, uh, the, the bank's owner, uh, gave, gave, you know, asked the secretary to give me a call and asked me to go for an interview. And I remember that uncle simply gave me this advice for the interview and simply said, at the interview, whatever he asks you, just tell him you don't know anything. Okay? And I said, okay, fine, that's what I'm going to do. Because, you know, back then you don't question anything. I mean, all the young people out there who have been blessed with 0% interest rates, right, with all these job opportunities, back then, it got to the point whereby you just do what you're told. And I just did what I was told. And I, and I went to the interview. No matter what he asked me, I gave the answer. And then um, I always ended my answers with, however, it is clear that I don't know anything and I'm, I'm willing to learn. And, you know, for even at a bank, I remember the starting salary I got was four digits. This was in 2004. Wow. So that was how I got. And then, um, and then uh, I obviously am an opinionated guy, right? And fortunately, the opinions that I gave uh, as a research assistant very quickly made me a full, full, full analyst. And uh, that was probably the job, the one single job that I learned the most, uh, that was u- most useful for my media career that followed after. But, uh, um, you know, things like data integrity, don't get things wrong, always check the sources. You know, in media, if you get them something wrong, right? Worst case scenario, you get sued for libel. Okay, but in a bank, if you get something wrong, you know, a lot of money can be lost. And also, we can get sued, you know, by the regulatory bodies. So it is a whole different, whole different scale, whole different league um, in, in the way that you pursue data integrity. But uh, uh, that was also the period in which I haven't, I haven't yet attained the uh, part-time womanizer. <laughs> you know, because once, or when a man's confidence is shattered to the point uh, that, that I was then, you know, it's very hard to project, um, that feel that Hong Kong girls are after, no matter what race or religion, right? That feel, that sexy feel that emanates from a man. I didn't have that, you know. When did your confidence start to come back then? Well, I, I basically when, um, it was probably when, uh, I moved to the media industry. And then I realized. Well, well, how did you how did you move from financial wizard to the media? Okay, towards the tail end of my of my analyst career, um, I felt that I was no longer learning as much. You know, you like to learn. You, you you're a. I, I like to be. You like to move. No, yeah. no, no, no. I, I I always feel that if I'm not learning, at least compensate me well, right? And it was not doing either very well. And I just sort of knew that working in a bank wasn't my thing because. Uh, although my opinion was correct, my cause was was right. You know, the stocks that I was telling my clients to buy was correct. Um, I just felt that my writing style was was cramped. And and I remember one day in which my boss hauled me into his office and he simply yelled at me for fifteen minutes because he said that I used too many flowery language in my equity research reports. Right? <laughs> I always thought a good salesman employed flowery language, but you know, he disagreed. And uh, he he actually gave me the advice. Why don't you go to? Why don't you write scripts? You know, if you like to write with such flowery language, why don't you write movie scripts? And I actually took his advice pretty seriously. I went down the I went down to the uh, Academy of Performing Arts and took his script writing class. <laughs> I actually, yes, I actually, that was how open minded I was about my about the advice I was getting. Uh, but I, I obviously knew that script writing wasn't my thing too. So. Uh, 
and I quit my job thinking to start a new business, uh, something to do with uh, tailor-made clothing. But as I was investigating the idea, I ran out of money, and I started borrowing money from my from my close friends, you know, all the all the brothers out there, right? Um, and all these brothers, uh, after six to nine months, started getting girlfriends and getting married, and you know, they they themselves came up to me and they like they were very highly apologetic and they. I know you quit your job and you're still investigating this idea, but you know, I got pressure from my girlfriends and wives and we, you have to, even if you can't repay the principal, at least pay some interest so that I can, you know, gao doi or just like satisfy and, and pacify my, my, my other half. And, uh, another friend of mine who I borrowed money from, um, said, why don't you, okay, he just joined Apple Daily, right? Um, and he says that Apple Daily is looking for a new columnist. Instead of a journalist writing about finance, they want a financial guy writing about general things. Just from a financial perspective, from a financial guy's perspective. So he said, why don't you start out with a weekly column? So I met up with the uh, Apple Daily's uh, head of finance, business finance page uh, for lunch. And then he says, yeah, why don't you start writing? So I started writing a weekly column. I wrote about all kinds of things, you know, from, from the bird flu to, I can't remember the first few columns, but, you know, it was after probably three columns that my friend called me up and he said, Jimmy Lai read your column. And Jimmy Lai actually wants you to write full time. And he, he asked, he said, so how's your business idea coming along? I was like, not, not, it, it wasn't going anywhere quick. So he goes, well, you know, why don't you pay off your debt first? Well, come in as a full time staff and, and start writing this column. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Lai also wants you, and I to help reform the uh, business finance section, you know. So he wanted someone with finance background to help out. So I said, well, I don't really have a choice, do I? And he goes, no, if you say no to me now, I'm going to call every one of your creditors to <laughs> <laughs> pressurize <laughs> you. you in the corner. Yes. And that was how I started my media career. It was actually by mistake because, the, as I said, you know, the only, the only uh, subjects I didn't get an A in was French English, right? And throughout my entire academic career, even in primary school, even my Chinese classes in primary school, I never got an A. You know, writing was like the last thing I ever thought I would do as a, as a, for, for a living. And the weirdest thing was this. The weirdest thing was um, during my days of being unemployed and not in school, I used, you know, back then there was a lot of online websites where you can plug in your date of birth, your time of birth, and your location of birth. And using a Chinese uh, astrology, Bazi, right? They're trying to calculate what kind of career you're most likely to have. You got writing? I got the three most, the three best careers I was supposed to have was writing, right? Being a writer, a poet, and things related to investment. And I looked at it, I was like, writing and poet, please. I'm, I'm basically illiterate bilingually, right? So come <laughs> on, right? And I became a writer about investments. And then, you know, nowadays when I think about it, the poet thing, right? I think modern day poetry is best expressed as rapping. So ladies and gentlemen out there, look out for my first rap album coming out. Probably in a few years' time. Andrew soon in the house. Andrew, we're coming up really towards the program. There's so much we still haven't covered yet. Let's fast forward a little bit. Something happened to you. Life-turning uh, uh, incident happened in the year 2012. Yes. You. Um, I drank to the point of ending up in the uh, intensive care unit. Uh, I, I was a full-fledged alcoholic by then. Uh, and I nearly did, tore through my tongue. I nearly bit myself so hard that I bit off my tongue. How did that? And bled myself to death. How did that happen? Well, as I became a financial uh, commentator, 
um, the, uh, the, the, the one call that truly made my career was in 2007, I came out with a very landmark column piece that simply said, you have to sell every single share you had of HSBC. You got to understand, HSBC wasn't just a company with shareholders. It was practically a religion with zealots. Okay, the two bronze lions outside HSBC headquarters, uh, Stephen and Stitt, those were the gods that these shareholders worshipped. You know, this was this wasn't post financial crisis. HSBC back then still had that halo, and I was I wasn't even thirty yet. I was twenty nine. I was one of the youngest financial commentators. I was probably the youngest financial commentator out there, writing publicly, and I was just. I was taken to the woodshed and whacked by people, uh, these shareholders online. You know, you had all kinds of endowment funds in Hong Kong that was holding HSBC. And here we have one, this one individual that says something catastrophic is coming for HSBC and you have to sell every single share. And obviously within 24 months, I was proven completely right. And that made my career. And eventually I ended up as the busiest uh, financial commentator in Hong Kong. And, you know, I was running five radio shows a week, a daily radio show a week, uh, a, a daily radio show. I was running about 10 TV shows a week. I was writing three columns in which one of them were daily until and weekly. I was the busiest financial commentator. And the pressure was... The pressure was kept building. I mean, of course, by then, I basically got the monkey off my back. I knew that, yes, you know, throughout my entire life, everyone said that everything that you had was given to you by a family because of your family background. But by then, it was... It was, purely, it was purely meritocratic, right? I, was, I did it by my merits. And, you know, that monkey was a mother mag. But, but then at that particular point, and the worst thing was uh, it, I'd made money. You know, I actually made money. I mean, it wasn't like tens and, you know, hundreds of million, but, you know, it, 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 was, it, it was money that I thought when I was making 4,000 or four digits a month, I would have never made, at least not before the age of 35 or 40, right? And I was, you know, I had money and then uh, it was just, I don't know, it was just some emptiness out there and I just kept drinking. And uh, there was also a moment in 2011, September, when my grandfather passed away. It was a Friday when I heard it and I also, there was basically no good people left in Hong Kong. You know, my grandfather was someone who was very serious about his work, very professional, you know, and... um you know, when he, when I, when news of him passing away got to me, it was a Friday and I can't remember anything apart from going down to the store, buying a big bottle of XO. I remember pouring the first glass and then pouring on the floor for him and then blacked out until Monday in which I was scheduled to be on TV, live TV, and I was drunk on live TV on air. In fact, um, if you were to Google my, my name in Chinese, that's probably one of the first uh, results you get back. It's on my Wikipedia entry, me being drunk on live TV. And I remember overnight I was fired from every single media job I had, from my radio job, from my TV job, from my, all my newspaper and my, my, my columns. Everything was fired. And I remember the first thought that went through my mind was great. Now I have more time to drink. You weren't even sad. I wasn't even sad. I thought, I felt liberated. Wow. Right. And, um, that was September 2011. It got to 2012. Over the, uh, the hand, the handover holiday weekend, early July. It was a long weekend and I thought, oh, I'll just drink again, right? And then uh, I remember drinking, um, 30th of June. And then when I woke up, it was probably four, five or six days later. And then when I woke up, I was like, where am I? You know, why am I surrounded by other beds with other people? And I looked at my wrist and that was Carita's hospital, you know, and, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't even know that I was in the ICU. I remember I checked myself out. Of the of the hospital, you know, I didn't even know that I tore my tongue. I just it just felt swollen, 
Um, and I remember checking myself out. I was still in my hospital guard when I got back home. And the first thing I did, even before I got back home, was to go to the store and bought myself another bottle of vodka. You're, you're kidding, right? I'm not kidding. And I remember drink spending that night, you know, drunk again. And then the next morning, I heard a knock on my door and opened it. It was my younger sister flying back from England. And he goes, brother, you're gonna, you, if you keep drinking, you're going to die. And I was like, so what's news, right? And she went, no, you're not going to die from like liver disease. You're going to die because you're going to fall off a building or get run over by a truck. You're going to follow me. We're going we're gonna to do something about it. And I was like, what? So first of all, he, she, took, she took me to my father's house and locked me up in my father's house uh, to get the physical withdrawal over. And then she basically booked doctors to check out my tongue. Um, and uh, I went to my first Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. You know, and I remember in my first AA meeting, uh, it was it was a very small meeting over in Kowloon, and there was only there was four people there. Um, the the person who arranged organized that particular meeting was this banker, uh, American banker, kind of young, below thirty, I remember, or early thirties. And then there was this really uh, there was this American lady who was kind of older. Um, she uh, very experienced in AA. She's been in AA for many many years. Uh, and then there was also this uh, guy from Europe, I think it was either uh, Ireland or Scotland, that was probably at my, who quit about a week, same time as I did. You know, so this was four, four individuals. And everyone out there, you've got to remember, I tore my tongue. So I was speaking like this. I was completely incomprehensible. Okay, I was completely incomprehensible. And um, because there was these two new guys, me and this other guy, uh, so the old, old lady suggested that we, we might as well have a meeting about uh, how we ended up in AA. And because, you know, an AA meeting lasts for an hour, right? And there's only four individuals. So those those three shared their stories first and taking 15 minutes each. And by the, you know, all, when they were all done, there was 15 minutes left. So I thought it was my turn, right? And even though I was incomprehensible, they still sat and listened. And there I was, you know, they, they pulled their guts out and they were telling, you know, the, the, the stories of how they end up in AA. Um, and I, and that was at that point I realized, you know, because I always felt that even if I stopped drinking, prior to to that AA meeting. I I went for like six months or three months without drinking before then. And um, I just felt that I was in a dark tunnel with no light at the end of the tunnel. And whenever I stopped drinking, I just merely sat down. I couldn't escape from that tunnel. I simply sat down. I mean, I didn't get any worse, but I wasn't getting anywhere. And when they shared their story, it just felt that suddenly I can see that light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, every single story was different, but the unifying theme was all the same. The messed up lives, you know, the physical injuries, the broken relationships. And um, when it was my turn, I just told what I felt. And I just remember just tears started rolling down my cheeks. I mean, I haven't cried up to that time for years. And just tears started rolling down my cheeks. And... uh it was at that moment when I was completely incomprehensible that I thought, this might just work. And it has. I haven't had a single drink since. You know, oh, it's God, been, you're going to make me cry. It's been, it's been three and a half years. Yeah. You know, and I just, you know, from the sharings that I got was one of the things that, that really, that made me really angry was, um, I really love this place, Hong Kong, you know, uh, and we are dying. And I just had to let it go. And I did. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am, was a super, super patriot. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's now for us, or for me anyways, to recognize that we are an accident of history. And we just have to accept that. You know, there's nothing much we can do. 
Wow. Andrew, we, we, we can't leave the show at this. Last question. What do you do for fun? <laughs> Can we this, is just, rather, this is rather hamstring. I know, hamst- this is hamstrung oh, good God, segue. This is Saturday morning, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, what, what are, are your hobbies? My yeah. hobbies? Uh, well, you used to be womanizing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I, 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 I read, I guess. You know, Horses. Boring stuff. I do a little horse racing. I dab on horse yeah. racing. I own a horse in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm in search for a new hobby. I mean, it used to be it used to be politics. It used to be arguments about public policy. But then knowing that you know I'm fighting against the trends of history, why bother? Hong Kong, Hong Kong truly is finished, right? So um, uh, I need to find some new hobbies. Um, I got a jigsaw se- puzzles. I don't know. I got a sewing machine for my birthday. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe get into cooking. Yeah. Maybe maybe buy maybe for the first time since the, since my PlayStation. Maybe it's time for me to buy a new game system. I don't know. Well, you know, pick up some old passions. Maybe find a, a girl who's willing to procreate with me and get some children. <laughs> You'd make a fine dad, Andrew. Thank you so much for for your sharing. You know, I I I love your stories, and this is just by far one of the deepest and you know most personal stories you've shared with us on Radio Three. <laughs> I'm gonna go for a cry. <laughs> Have a great Saturday morning. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Soon, ladies and gentlemen.